Welcome to Founder Friendly, NYU's first student-led technology and venture capital podcast. Here, we provide an inside look into startups and PCs to help you break into the industry and learn more about the latest technology and trends. In this episode, we're excited to host Varun Ramakrishnan and James Flynn, investors at General Atlantic specializing in the technology sector. Join us to hear them share their experiences transitioning into VC straight from undergraduate studies, their insights on considerations for AI when it comes to tech investing, as well as some ways they are considering AI in their daily workflow. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Frown to Friendly. Welcome to our fourth episode on our AI ML Sprint. Today, we are extremely excited to welcome two guests on the show, Varun Ramakrishnan and James Flynn. Varun and James are investors at General Atlantic, uh, covering investments in the technology sector. We're lucky to have two different backgrounds speaking to us today. Prior to joining GA, James spent a summer covering TMT investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Meanwhile, prior to joining GA, Varun served as a software engineer for several AI startups. So we've got a lot to talk about, and we're excited to dive into it. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I think what would be super helpful um, for all of our viewers is if we could hear a little bit about like your backgrounds. I, I spoke a little bit about it, but if you guys want to dive in a little bit about how you got to GA, maybe what General Atlantic is for the audience, uh, that'd be great. I'm happy to go for it and start. Um, so personal intro, my name is Varun. I'm an investor here at General Atlantic based in San Francisco. I've been at GA for about two and a half years now. And prior to GA, as Spencer mentioned, I was a couple startups as a software engineer tend to have a, more of an industry focus on infrastructure software and actually have spent my time both in New York as well as San Francisco. Cool. And uh, hey guys, great to be great to be on. Uh, I'm James. I've been at GA for about one and a half years now. Time is flying by. Here I spend my time sort of across different application and vertical software categories. So the whole bunch of different spaces, but have been having a blast. Before this, like you said, spent my summer at Goldman doing TMT banking in New York. Uh, did my undergrad at Penn, like Varun, and then I'm originally from Toronto. So that's uh, my quick little background. And then GA, maybe it's it's helpful to give you just like the two second overview on the firm as well. Um, so GA is a super like global growth equity firm. We've got 17 offices around the world. We sort of invest in between six and $10 billion every year in growth globally. And that's across like a whole bunch of different sectors. So we do stuff in technology, which is about half of what the firm does. And then also do a whole bunch in healthcare, financial services, life sciences, um, sort of beyond net zero, which is our decarbonization focus fund. And then also sort of consumer, which is like real world consumer companies, things like Gymshark, Joe and the Juice, our portfolio companies there. Um, so GA will like write checks, you know, in a pretty broad range of sizes and do a whole bunch of different kinds of deals all over the world, which is, uh, you know, really nice for us to just get that kind of exposure and, and to be able to do all those different things. Maybe not ourselves, but at least sort of be close with the people who are doing all that stuff all around the world. Definitely. And I think an interesting part of the origin story at GA, just how we were founded. So Back in the 80s, GA was founded originally as a family office, and we were the family office of an individual named Chuck Feeney. Chuck was the founder of Duty Free Shops, and he sold that in the 80s to LVMH for about a billion dollars. He set up Atlantic Philanthropies to amass and grow his wealth and eventually give that away over the rest of his lifetime. And General Atlantic was investment vehicle uh, set aside for that. Fast forward to today, 
it, we have fully spun out as a separate fund. Chuck ended up giving $9 million over the course of his lifetime, and he ended up as well fully separate out. And I think it's a really interesting ethos that we bring to the job, just keeping up Chuck's spirit, keeping up kind of the ethos of the firm from that perspective. Yeah, I love that. It seems like a very philanthropic endeavor and a cool founding story for sure. I think one of the coolest things about General Atlantic, for students at least, is we know about General Atlantic's analyst program. I'm sure like, yeah, you guys have gone through it. You guys came into it out of school. And I'm curious, like, because we have both of you here, um, what made you decide against banking, I want to go to General Atlantic or against like working in a startup early on? Yeah, I can, uh, I can take that first. You know, I've had some experience in college working at a growth equity firm that was based in Toronto briefly. Um, and I just really loved that stage of company. I think for the reason that a whole bunch of people do, things are still sort of early enough and still like up in the air in a way that there's some uncertainty, there's some excitement. You feel like you as a partner to those businesses can have some impact on the outcome in some small way. Obviously, it's much more up to the entrepreneur, but that's still super cool. And so I was really excited by that. But growth is also late enough that like there are numbers and you can do analysis and you can sort of like build out that toolkit as a junior person in finance and in tech investing. And also like, I think for me at this stage of my life, you know, I like to have data behind the decisions I'm making. I don't feel like I have fully developed this intuition that can just like sort of make decisions without there being sort of hard facts behind it. So I like the stage of investing when I did it in college. And then when I was at Goldman during the summer, I had a great time. It was a very crazy time to be to be doing that. It was sort of the peak of the sort of tech market bull run in the summer of 2021. There were so many IPOs happening all the time. Goldman was doing really well and was doing a whole bunch of them. But I think I just sort of did feel a little bit of an itch to try to get back to the growth side sort of right away. I think it's a super interesting job, the analyst program at GA at a bunch of growth firms where you get to like be out there in the world, meeting with companies, building those relationships and like making stuff happen for yourself in a way that is just tricky to do when you're in sort of like a really big institutional place, like an investment bank. There are definitely like pros and cons, but that was sort of one of the big pros, I would say. And, you know, I've, I'm really happy with the decision that I've made. I think James put it really well in terms of the pros and cons and the way to balance the job. I think from my perspective, coming at things from a slightly more technical point of view, going into college, I most of my experiences were with science projects. I was working in science labs, working on things like atomic physics and hydrogen masers and things that were largely science experiments. Going into college in Penn, I joined the M&T program, which enabled me to study computer science and business. And I think through that experience, I came across a lot of really powerful entrepreneurs and technologists who sometimes didn't get the entire picture. And when I went to figure out what that entire picture was, I realized there was this entire world of operating and business building behind the amazing technology that I'd fallen in love with as a teen. And I wanted to find more ways to learn about that side of the world. I had done a range of different internships in college, ranging from moonlighting and as an AI quote unquote engineer at a startup to working at an oil and gas fund to working at a larger company that's maybe a little less advanced on the tech side working on computer vision products for them. And I think for me, I was always missing that sort of high level view of businesses and understanding how businesses are, are built and, and scaled. And as James said, I think growth is a really unique blend of back in the in the product industry, as well as studying and analyzing the business fundamentals and being able to extrapolate future performance. So I think it was a really great 
blend of the skills that I was able to attain in college, as well as just find the stage really interesting relative to how the cards fit this thing. Awesome. I have a question, just being a bit more specific coming in. What was that learning curve like for both of you, you know, given sort of your different backgrounds? I'd be curious to hear if both of you have the same learning curves or is it different? I think James and I are going to have different answers on this one. Coming into the job, you know, I had a traditional finance undergraduate education and I've done the internship at GA. So I felt like at a high level, I knew how things somewhat worked, but I wasn't by any means an expert. The biggest learning curve for me was being able to, as I alluded to before, putting everything together, able to put together your views on product, your views on the business model, your views on future performance and come to a, a really high quality decision at the end. What I mean by that is I focus a lot on DevOps, for example, and in DevOps, you see a thing of leapfrogging happening in the industry where a new developer framework will become hot every year or two. And sometimes you ask yourself the question, are you in just investing in the flashiest name or how defensible are some of these open source frameworks over the course of five or eight years, which is the time horizon that James and I are often looking at. And I often used to just say no to companies based on the product alone and be like, this is a legacy database technology. I don't think the industry is moving towards it. But then I often ignored 60% of the industry is not going to be able to switch from this technology to the new one in the next five or eight years. Or this technology has a really great ability to reinvent itself and maybe evolve in five or so years to keep up with the trend. So I think keeping an open mind was the main learning curve that I had to really circumvent and being able to put everything together when about business, not just looking myopically at one or two things. Yeah, that's awesome. And maybe just quickly for me, you know, I'd say some of the learnings for me were a little bit more on like the technical and the product side. Like I'd spend some time with numbers. I felt like I'd understood sort of like business models and markets at a high level. But I think it's sort of very different to be confronted with the differences between two companies that from the outside look like they're sort of doing the same thing, whether that's like nuance in how they're going to market, on who exactly they're serving, on how sort of heavy of a lift implementation is. You know, there are all these sort of nuances to software businesses that you don't necessarily appreciate when you look at their website. And I think being able to evaluate things like that, you know, is something that was a steep learning curve for me. And I'd say something else that's sort of a quirky part of the job is just being willing to like put yourself out there and like send the email to the founder and like know that it's going to be okay. Like they may respond, they may not, to be honest, but nothing bad is going to happen. And I'd say that, that like fearlessness and willingness to just put yourself out there, send the cold email, do the thing and try to have the conversation is definitely something that you need to be successful in, in these kinds of jobs early on in your career, just because it is so much about knowing people and so much about having conversations and getting the intel and learning from those entrepreneurs during the conversation. Because entrepreneurs are almost always incredibly smart people who know so, so much about the sector that they're working on. So just the willingness to send that email and take that step was something that, you know, often in big companies or like even in school, it's like, am I allowed to do this? Like, is there some sort of compliance violation? Or will the professor get pissed off if I email them and, and I don't post to Piazza or something, right? Whereas in the real world, it's just like send the person an email and see what happens. So that was definitely something that I learned early and has been, you know, really, really helpful in the job. Yeah, I think that's like such a great piece of advice. Like you, you really can't be scared to send that like, outreach email. Like the worst that could happen is maybe you're ghosted. Um, but yeah. like, I, yeah, ideally, like you could you could learn a lot from it. Um, I know like we've been a little successful and we could strongly relate to that. But um, I'm just curious because part of the job, like if you're working on like infrastructure software, if you're working a lot with software companies, 
a lot of them are servicing businesses. They're not like servicing the consumer like you and me. And you're coming in out of school. So you haven't had an experience as a potential buyer. Is that someone you kind of prioritize talking to? So if you're thinking about how if a software company is giving a good service, I'm trying to differentiate it from another company. Are you going to customers or are you going to potential buyers? How do you prioritize that, if that makes sense? I can go first on that. I think we like to talk a lot with customers and marketers within a certain subset to really understand how they view product and how they view product evolution over the course of the last five years and the course of the next three to five years. So talking to customers is everything for us. And it ranges from talking to confirmed customers of a company. Say you're looking at company X. It's helpful to talk to confirmed customers of company X, but it's also really helpful to talk to former employees of the company. It's helpful to talk to former customers, understand why they churned perhaps, or talk to customers of other platforms who may have evaluated that product in a certain competitive set and chosen not to go with that company. So I think you guys are correct. Customer feedback is very important. And I think it's James and I job to be creative with that and figure out who is the right person to talk to. Is it the direct customer or is it sometimes someone who is adjacent in the process? Yeah. The one thing I, I might add to that too, that we do sometimes and I'm actually doing right now on an investment we're thinking about doing is like mystery shopping and just like sort of coming up with a business that looks like something that they would or somebody that they would like to serve and just sort of like asking around, you know, the company you're looking at, some of their competitors and just try to get a sense for like how the salespeople for those companies are like positioning them in the market, what the differences are in what they're sort of emphasizing, what they're talking about, what they aren't talking about. And that can really give you some insight that like you're not necessarily going to get when you talk to the CEO for 30 minutes and sort of we're keeping it fairly high level. So I'd say that's another thing that we do sort of kind of on the customer side of things, but not directly talking to customers. Yeah. And just on that side of diligence or like diving into like you guys' workflows, I would love to hear a little bit uh, about what are your individual investment frameworks? How has that sort of changed over the past few years on the job? I know that's something that a lot of investors, you know, are developing over a period of like 10 to 15 years, but we'd just love to hear what it is right now and how it has changed. Definitely. I try to look at a couple core characteristics, general characteristics of business. The first one would be around the retention dynamics of the business, seeing if a, if a business is naturally sticky, if customers are unwilling over time to remove the product and how difficult it is to adopt the product in the first place. I think the second thing is just understanding the level of mission criticality for the end customer. If you remove this product from their stack tomorrow, how dire would the effects be and how important is it to their everyday workflows? I think the last thing is around just product and where the product sits today in the broader industry and the broader evolution product set that they're competing against. Is it something that we think will persist and that moat will persist in the long term? Do we think that they're trying to take advantage of a very near-term market opportunity that may not persist after the past couple of years? I would say those are really kind of the three core things that I look at initially when I, when I take a look at business. Yeah, 100% agree with all of those things. I guess maybe just like one step back as well is just thinking about like, how much value is this company creating for their end user? I'd say those things sometimes show up in the numbers. But honestly, it's something that even at the growth stage doesn't always because I think people are still paying with their or playing with their like pricing model and just like how they're thinking about capturing some of that value that you that they're creating for their customers and sort of value creation 
can in some ways be like a leading indicator to a company's business because it sort of takes time to, to capture that value. And in some ways, by creating it and not taking too much of a share of it, you create this great goodwill with those customers that then lets you have a really collaborative relationship with them over time. So I'd say that that's sort of like one like super high level thing that I think of. And then like, you know, obviously on the financial side, there's a whole bunch of metrics that people look at. I'd say like one that you guys even, you know, and people listening can just like quickly see on companies as they're thinking about them is like the rule of 40, sort of like a very basic metric, which is just like revenue growth or some sort of top line growth number, literally just plus some sort of bottom line profitability number, often EBITDA margin. And that can be just like a nice way to get a really high level sense of how this company is balancing the trade-off between growth and profitability. And the reason that it's often so powerful is because over a long period of time, there's a little bit of a view that you can sort of trade growth for profitability. You know what I mean? Like if you're growing 60% and maybe burning 20% of your top line revenue every year, sort of over time, if you choose to like take your foot off the gas a little bit, grow a little bit more slowly, you can sort of translate some of that lost revenue growth into profitability. And that rule of 40 number tends to be actually something that stays more consistent over a company's life cycle than some other sort of numbers that are a little bit easier to mess around with, because this one is something that's taking in sort of the highest level top line number and just like a very fundamental bottom line number as well. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask a little bit particularly about that. I think hopefully this will give a little bit more context onto the market that like currently exists uh, for AI, AI companies. But I feel like I've heard a lot of VCs speak about how the rule 40, there might be bias towards growth or bias towards margins in different markets. I've heard a lot about like how a lot of companies are focusing on profitability right now, for example. I'm curious if that's something that you guys mix into your framework, uh, maybe thinking about profitability a little bit earlier on for companies as opposed to growth, or if you just kind of go rule of 40, you're unbiased towards either either side. I think from my perspective, rule of 40 starts to make sense more and more as a company gets more mature and has more scale. So when totally. you think about a simple example of a series A company, say that they're growing 900% year over year top line, but then they're burning a ton of money on the bottom line, you can just do some simple math and say the revenue growth will far outpace and cancel out the, uh, the EBITDA margin effect on the rule of 40. So I tend to index a little less on that for earlier stage businesses and look at it more and more as time goes on. It's hard to really scientifically, I think at the earliest stages of companies, measure trade-off. But I think we at GA, we try to look at things from a measured burn, measured growth perspective. You have to take a look at the burn and sometimes you have to take a view that some level of burn is necessary to achieve a certain level of revenue growth. And you have to ultimately conclude two things. One, are you comfortable with the current level of burn? Do you think that explain it and point that level of burn to meaningful improvements you make in the business itself? I think second, is there a line of sight to profitability or even at least at the very early stages, is there a line of sight to controlling the cost structure such that it is not so right? as you move forward. I think those are the two things we really look at for early stage businesses. But apart from that, I find it very difficult to scientifically measure the trade-off with those types of companies. Yeah, that's totally right. The one thing that maybe ties into it a little bit is like the concept of unit economics at the customer level. So often you sort of spend a whole bunch of money upfront to acquire a customer. 
And they may not pay you that money back in like the first year that they're with you. But you can sort of predictably see that over time, they do continue to stick around. They continue to spend money with you. And then it sort of just becomes an exercise of, okay, if you're growing really fast and you have a disproportionate number of your customers that are very new, you may break even with a customer, let's say 18 months into your relationship with them. But if like way more than half your customers have been acquired in the last six months, then your business overall may be unprofitable, but you have like pretty good line of sight into the fact that as that cohort of customers mature, you're going to become sort of more profitable over time. So that's definitely one like way that we try to think about it and forecast things sort of on a cohorted basis and understand how revenue cost and profitability sort of evolves over a cohort's time with the company. And then on like growth versus profitability, I think like it's not a novel point to say that just as interest rates have gone up, cash flow in five years is much less valuable than cash flow today. And that sort of is like the fundamental thing that has caused a lot of the shift in all investors' mindsets sort of towards profitability versus growth. And I think it's unclear whether or not that's like a totally healthy thing. I think most of the businesses that we look at at GA are definitely not profitable. And I think that we will continue to invest in unprofitable businesses because often it makes sense to get to that scale where you can really sort of find operating leverage and be super successful. And sometimes it just takes a bit of burn to do that. But the way that interest rates have changed and, and people's time horizons have gotten a little bit shorter has definitely influenced how everybody in the in the whole world is thinking about money over time. Yeah, I love both answers here. And, and I really liked, James, what you had said about like thinking about the evolution of a company's revenue, of a company's profitability. Um, Varun, what you said about like thinking about how their cost structure looks. Uh, and I'm curious along these lines, now pivoting a little bit into AI, how do you see like the sort of evolution of cost structures changing for AI companies? Am I correct in thinking like a lot of R&D, right, um, for some of these bigger companies as they try to figure out what can we, how can we implement AI into our product if they haven't already done it? But what else would like someone not really expect to see uh, change in that cost structure due to like AI implementation or like kind of the advent of this here? I'll answer the question from the perspective of a customer who is looking to implement AI into their products and buy services or products from these newer AI native startups and companies. You're exactly right. I think you're going to see more spend on R&D with headcount and having your engineers implement. I think, interestingly, a lot of companies are going to see higher costs on the implementation and services side of things. Today, we do a lot of customer work, obviously, at GA, not only on investment prospect, but generally thematically understanding CIO buying patterns, understanding how things are prioritized, and even understanding at the procurement level to what extent our CFOs having effect on deals getting signed. And interestingly, a lot of companies, both within our portfolio and outside, they cite one of the biggest bottlenecks to adopting AI as just resources in-house having the knowledge and the know-how and the ability to actually effectively implement AI into their products. So I think we're going to see a lot more spend from these customers with folks like Accenture's and other SIs to help implement some of these AI products. And even on the AI native side of things, you're seeing companies like OpenAI and Cohere partner with some of these SIs as they understand that in many cases, these larger enterprises will have to partner for implementation. Yeah, maybe just like expand on the cost structure side of things a little bit. I think there's actually in some ways going to be a shift from some of this sort of like R&D and AI spend 
being very fixed cost that you do internally, you spend a whole bunch of money developing your own models, developing your own technology to variable where you're sort of just like calling on open AI stuff as you then need to provide a service to your customer. I think it's sort of something like what happened with cloud computing in some ways where you go from a company needing to spend a whole bunch of money to like spin up all their own servers and that being like in some ways a fixed cost to it being sort of like very much a variable cost. And there are, there are huge advantages to that for companies when they're sort of at small scale, when making that big fixed investment doesn't make tons of sense. At a certain point, you then start to ask questions and like I'm seeing some of the biggest companies that are sort of in spaces where you can think about, okay, do I want to just plug into all of these sort of like publicly available models or do I want to make my own? Some really big companies are thinking about making their own because they're at a scale where it makes sense to make that big fixed cost investment because the variable costs associated with their prov providing their service to their hundreds of thousands of customers is actually very large. And my roommate actually used to work on the infrastructure team at Facebook, which is an example there where they did a lot of their own sort of servers and their own like cloud computing. And because it made sense for them at their scale, not to just use AWS for all that stuff. And so I think you're going to end up seeing sort of a similar dynamic where for small and medium and even like large companies, it makes sense to pay on a variable basis for access to the underlying technology. But then at a certain point with like the truly biggest companies, maybe they will make investments to try to replicate some of the work that's being done by companies that are really specializing in building the underlying models. Yeah, for sure. And something that I'm really curious about, I know that most funds towards like end of the year, they have to do a portfolio valuation. They have to revisit all portfolio companies and revisit valuations. I'm curious to hear if sort of this acceleration of AI has in some way influence any of these valuations, be it in terms of maybe risks, uh, is the market, are there like new opportunities, are there new revenue streams that you guys are projecting out for certain companies at a very high level? I think on the valuation point, we have not done a lot internally on the AI point to really look at our valuation or change our valuation framework. In terms of how we have looked at our own investment framework and how we diligence companies, I do think that has changed as a result of AI. On the portfolio side, I've certainly seen some companies you know, really expand their usage of AI and I've already seen the effects of that in their top line. Certainly companies in our own portfolio. Speaking more broadly and speaking about our broader investment diligence frameworks, we have certainly been revisiting certain sectors that we think may be more resistant, less resistant to generate moving forward, I think the public markets have really shown their appetite in certain companies like NVIDIA, obviously, in the positive and other companies on the ad tech realm, Chegg on the negative. So for us, there are certain sectors like services, software testing, where we really ask ourselves, will these services heavy businesses exist in five to 10 years or will Gen AI completely get rid of those? And then on the other side of things, there are a lot of interesting businesses on the infrastructure side related to managed services and managing the actual impl implementation of these software platforms. And I think with those already software service hybrid offerings, we could see even more growth and acceleration as they implement Gen AI into more of their offerings. Yeah. And one thing on the portfolio side, for me, um, I spent a whole bunch of time in like sales and marketing tech. It's sort of an area that I've covered for the firm. And there are tons of applications of generative AI in that space, it's a very text heavy area. A lot of materials are being like created and then sent out, whether that's emails or 
pitch decks or like video demos even now that are increasingly being done in an automated way. And so I sort of took part in a little seminar with a bunch of our portfolio company sales leaders a couple of months ago. And we really heard from them how big of a difference that kind of stuff was making in their go-to-market efforts. We heard something from one portfolio company that their email response rate to cold emails had gone up like by five or six X just as a result of adopting one of these tools. There are tons of them that are using Gen AI to like write better sales emails. And so I think that that's something that's super interesting. And I think that there will always be room for like the truly best in class email marketers or like copywriters to like differentiate themselves from the models. But I do think that just like applying best practices, whether that's like mobile optimizing your sales email or other things like that, which is really easy to do if you have an AI system that has sort of been trained on top of the underlying model to be as good as possible at a certain type of sales material. You know, doing things like that is going to drive a whole bunch of ROI for customers. And I think we're definitely seeing that in the portfolio, our companies adopting, you know, tools like that externally, as well as trying to integrate AI into their own products. Awesome. And speaking of AI tools, I'd be curious just to hear if both of you, James, Varun, uh, have you guys sort of leveraged any of the tools within your daily workflows, be it part of GA, maybe even outside of GA that you guys are enjoying, that you're seeing a lot of improvements in like quality of life, workflow and other things? I think on the GA side of things, I certainly use ChatGPT. More is my personal search engine. I find that it's really good when you start completely fresh on a topic. It's been a recent push of mine to learn about things a lot fully out of my comfort zone. And when I try to learn about things that I have no idea about, I find it very helpful to just ask ChatGPT and start from there. So that has been really helpful. Or when you want to get some quick reference data, I think ChatGPT is quite helpful. On the email side of things, I think some folks on our team at varying levels are using email automation and using some templates from ChatGPT and these others. But I think that's the extent to which we use it internally. I believe our investment committee is also playing around with OpenAI and you know exploring a couple of ways we can use AI in our own investment diligence and potentially as even a member of our investment committee down the line. But that's the stuff on the internal front. Personally, I haven't used a ton outside of just the search engine capabilities. I'm really excited with the recent Dev Day announcements around the marketplace, and I'm really excited to try other people's, uh, you know, OpenAI wrappers, but have not played a lot with them personally. Yeah, I agree with Rune. Some people on the team have been using it, you know, more or less to like send cold emails a little bit in the way that, that that portfolio company I was talking about had. That's not something that I've fully adopted yet. We'll see how it goes over the coming months. One other way that I've used it is, you know, we're often at the growth stage, like looking at a data set of just tons and tons of companies. We've got all these company names, descriptions, things like that. And so I've sort of used a plugin to Google Sheets to sort of try to read the description of a company and categorize it into one of the subsectors that we sort of cover at GA. And so that's been one way that I've used it to like really accelerate my ability to like find the companies that I'm interested in and reach out to them and not need to like manually go through and read the descriptions of like hundreds of thousands of companies. That's been a real productivity uh, boom for me. Yeah, love the hacks that, that you've been working with. I have a question. I hope this is a fun question for you guys because Varun, you talked about evaluating like due diligence frameworks and how Gen AI can like be implemented into different companies, um, what areas really work for it. And James, you talked about how like sales, some of these companies that you've been hopping on a call with are really getting a good value out of this. 
I'm curious yeah. on the other side, are there areas like if you is there a specific area where you are very bearish on like the implementation of AI like that won't work? Or if you maybe you don't have one like that, is there a area where you're very surprised that the implementation of AI has such a profound effect? I think from my perspective, I have been surprised with the level of AI being used for mission critical applications by some customers. I mentioned cybersecurity. We are already seeing practitioners in the field using AI to prioritize alerts, even help with remediation. And oftentimes those two things, prioritizing and reviewing alerts and actually carrying out remediating remediation efforts, those are very critical things that oftentimes are only trusted with a human being. And I'm surprised, you know, Microsoft has made a very push with their security and AI businesses around that theme. So I've been very surprised in the level of mission critical use cases that AI is being used for today. In terms of areas that we aren't as excited about, I don't think we are, you know, again, the space moves so quickly and evolves so fast. We are trying to keep an open mind and not trying to write off any certain subcategory or area. But I think we just try to look for for things with low moats. When you think about a lot of these chat GPT wrappers, especially with yesterday's announcement, all of those companies have kind of vanished off the face of the earth. And I think for us, really trying to understand is AI a product? Is AI a feature or a capability within a broader platform is, is what we try to diligence. So we haven't written anything off, but things that are simple wrappers or very small effects of AI, we, we tend not to be at one fun one for me, I guess, is like I've been surprised by just how like magical the experience of using these tools is to like everybody who tries them. Like my grandparents now like will use it. Like my grandma loves to like talk to it. Like she's super into poetry. So she'll like have it write like a poem about a snowman in the voice of her favorite 1800s poet and like just absurd things like that, that she's like having tons of fun with it. And this isn't somebody who's like particularly tech savvy, right? So I think it's been cool to see how much the magic of just infinite creativity resonates with people of all different sort of tech literacies and, and people who have used technology more or less in their lives before. So that's super cool. I guess like maybe on the company side, one thing that I think is super interesting and, and we're just going to need to be on the lookout for is like what Rune said, like is AI a product or is it a feature within a product or like a capability within a platform? You know, I think it'll be interesting to see how the big players who already have distribution into the workflows in a whole bunch of different functional areas within the enterprise sort of can just implement AI into their products and really just win because they can let people get value from it in such a more frictionless way as compared with like a new tool that you need to like spin up, you need to go to like procurement to have them be like, okay, yeah, you can buy it. And then you need to implement it. You need to learn it versus something where everybody who works at a company already knows how this tool works. They're in it like day after day. And it's just like really then that on that company to like integrate the open AI features into what they already enable customers to do. And I think that's sort of a dynamic that we're watching. And I think we're like optimistic that some companies maybe that have like reached scale and are maybe slowing down a little bit from a growth perspective, will like get new life in some ways by integrating AI into their offerings and can maybe do an increasing share of, of the work for people and just let people be more productive, let people do less, fewer things that are like very mundane and, and more things that are like more creative and more interpersonal and more interesting to people. I think like that's the promise of AI is that we can all spend less time doing 
generic and somewhat boring things, like reading through a thousand companies to figure out which ones are in your subsectors and more time like doing interesting things like talking to founders. That's an example from my job, but I think everybody in all of our jobs has things that we like doing more or less. And I think sort of the hope is that increasingly we find ways to automate the things that we like doing less and have more time to do the things that we like doing more. Definitely. I think James makes a lot of interesting points, especially on magic of AI and seeing how people in everyday life are using AI for even mundane tasks. When I was in school and finishing up my master's project, I was working on Google's preferred models and I was working on different implementations and different changes we can make to the model for ADA compliance and accessibility use cases. That was my project. And back then I was thinking to myself, this stuff's not ready for prime time. This stuff is, is a long ways away. And those models weren't being called LLMs at the time. And fast forward to, to today, I not only question my career decisions, not staying in machine learning and not staying as an engineer, but you know, I'm just blown away with the level of progress that's been made in the last couple of years and even the last two or three months, to be honest. And I think the second point that I found really interesting from James was just the level of AI that companies are using today and the interesting position incumbents or even just four to five-year-old startups are in being able to take advantage of existing customer relationships and distribution networks to just implement AI into their existing products. Portfolio companies of ours, like Terra, have found great success from being able to do that. And it really makes us question who is in a better position in this AI wave. Is it these new providers that are starting up today or is it these companies that have been in the field that already know the buying and go-to-market process a little bit and can just take advantage of these near-term tailwinds? I also think it's interesting to see what level of AI are these vendors actually using in these products. I think being a practitioner and implementing AI systems and now being an investor, you'd be surprised how many companies are just using linear regression or logistic regression on the back end and saying they're using AI. And I've seen it at companies that I've worked at before. So I think it's really interesting to see. And I think customers will now get smarter on, is this product actually leveraging AI? And is this implementation of AI better than our competitors' implementation of AI? Yeah, and I think that absolutely resonates with me. Just in sort of like the past few months, we are seeing pretty much every software company roll out some type of feature and they're calling it AI. And we don't know if it's AI, if it's automation, if it's just, you know, like a binary tree-like decision. But yeah, hopefully customers will be getting smarter. But you spoke about a portfolio company, Atera, sort of implementing AI internally to improve your operations. Could we hear a little bit more about that? What is the company and what exactly are they doing? So Atera is a really interesting company. So Atera is an IT management platform and it's built for IT teams. It's typically used for help desk and ticketing purposes. So think if you are having issues logging into your email or you, you can't find your phone or something, you'll submit a ticket. And Atera is essentially the back end that helps you manage all of those tickets. Atera has done something really interesting with automating a lot of the manual workflows around the manage tickets and tasks. So for example, if James were to submit a ticket to me saying, I can't log into Slack, Atera now has a feature where they use Microsoft Azure OpenAI service to summarize the tickets, say, this is what James's problem is, and this is what we think the the, the fix is, and then they'll help you remediate that fix. They'll draft you the response to the ticket telling James, hey, James, this is all that we did and you should be good to go. And I think the last thing is 
IT managers run all sorts of scripts on the back end to automate all the different things going on in the IT environment. And Atera actually now has a co-pilot product or capability that enables you to auto-generate scripts. So if you need a, a simple bash script to maybe you know, remove a bunch of junk files every week from a certain directory, Atera can just help auto-generate that snippet, that code snippet, and then you can implement it. So they're doing a ton of really interesting things on the AI front, both in terms of their focus workflow on the help desk front, as well as just generating scripts and they've seen a ton of really interesting traction as a result of that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm super happy that we we're able to, to give a, a, a good example of, of AI implementation here, um, just because I know we are coming up on time. Uh, and I wanted to ask a kind of broader question to end it for both of you. Obviously, this podcast is tailored to undergraduate students across universities. So uh, Varun, you had said, um, one decision that like you, you may have questioned why you, you had left uh, like the world of, of machine learning. I'm curious if you could turn back the clock, would you do something different in your undergrad experience? Do you think that you got a good taste of everything and made a decision that you're extremely happy with? Or if there was maybe like a tiny nugget that you could give to, to some of our listeners, I think that'd be really cool. I'm happy with my career choices overall. I think there could have been uh, better things I could have done in my career to optimize, but overall happy with the outcomes thus far. In terms of advice I give to my younger self, I would really tell myself to focus a bit more on just getting a better network of other investors, other junior investors, other folks going to work at high growth startups and work in the entrepreneurial setting. That would be the biggest piece of advice I give to myself. There are so many people I went to school with looking back who are already doing amazing things in their career. I think getting to know people better on that front would be just an amazing thing for myself and James because at the end of the day, sometimes we just call ourselves dumb investors and the folks that really know what's going on are the folks working at startups and the folks who are practitioners. So I would give myself the advice of just expanding my network across venture, across the startup ecosystem, not only with my peers, but also trying to reach out through clubs, through warm connections, through family and friends relationship, folks who are already in the investing landscape and startup world. So I better prepare myself for life after school. Yeah, maybe building on that. And I, uh, I agree with Varun that getting to know more people sort of early on is like in some ways a hack because everybody's always down to chat. Like everybody's down to be friends. And I think as you progress in your career, that becomes less and less true. It's sort of like freshman year of college, right? Like everybody's always down to be friends. And then like over time, you sort of have your friend group and things lock up a little bit more. So I'd say that that's also kind of true, like in the real world. So that's definitely one. I guess something else is like, I have been quite happy with my career choice because we get to work with a whole bunch of different kinds of companies that are doing a whole bunch of different kinds of things. I like to be fairly general. And I think that like thinking about in college, whether you're somebody who wants to go like really, really deep on one specific thing, like maybe Varun, you were when you were doing your master's in like machine learning versus being somebody who gets to sit like at a little bit of a higher level, definitely don't understand anything as much as people who are like in the weeds on it every day. But getting to like sort of view the world and view progress and view technology and innovation at like a slightly more abstracted level and like across a range of different industries and different like toolkits and different functional areas within companies. That's been something that's been really rewarding for me. And I think I did think a bit about it in school. I think I've been pleasantly surprised that I like sort of whatever intuition I was using to make that choice at the time was what I think ended up being true for me. But I probably wish that I'd given it some more thought. So that would definitely be advice as well. 
and then like just on the school front, I'd say like enjoy it. Like don't be too stressed out by all the job stuff. Like I know that the recruiting process in school is like a very stressful thing. At Penn it was, at NYU, my impression is that it also is maybe even more. And so it's definitely a unique time in your life when you're like around only people who are like within three years of you in age and everybody's still figuring out what they want to do with their lives. And it's like a very fun time. And I'd say like, as I get older and older, I cherish those memories from college more and more. And it's like definitely not the job related stuff that is what stands out. It's having fun with people. And so I'd say don't get too stressed out by the job stuff. Always make time for friends and, you know, friends that are relevant professionally and also all the friends that aren't like I think that that's something that can get too involved in in college friendships too so I'd say spend time with people you like spending time with and that's probably like the way to the way to do it largely so that's that's another piece of advice yeah I really love the professional and the candid personal advice I think both of those are like gonna be hopefully super helpful for our viewers Resonates and obviously a lot. <laughs> yeah obviously for ourselves but uh that's gonna do it for this episode of founder friendly Thank you so much, Varun and James, for joining us. And thank you to all of our listeners for, for hopping in. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, guys.